If you'll go ahead and turn into Luke chapter 1, we're going to be moving through verses 57 through 66. That song promises is really the theme of this section of Scripture. Uh, Promises are tricky things because they're they're declarations that uh, I'll do something or I won't do something else. That's what a promise is. Now, when I was younger, I made a promise to my dad at one point that I would stop throwing the lawn dart. If you're familiar with that, essentially it's a giant spear uh, that kids would use to play a game. There was this ring you'd put in your yard and these lawn darts that had uh, like spikes with wings on them. Incredibly dangerous. They don't sell them today. People would die horrible deaths. But we used to play that, and what we did is we advanced the game differently. Instead of throwing it into a ring on the yard, we would get the neighborhood kids together. We'd crowd together. One guy would have the lawn dart, and he would throw it in the air, and everybody runs. (laughs) Kind of dangerous. I remember Dad saw it one time. He said, promise me you'll never do that again. I said, all right. I didn't do it again. I had the ability to control that promise. That was within my ability. But sometimes we have a tendency to promise things that aren't in our ability. Uh, we could say, I, I, I promise that I will never leave you. Now, there might come a time that you have to leave that person. I promise that I will always treat you this way. Really? Really? The pressure cooker of life? You can deliver on that that check you've written? Promises are tricky things. I would say that we veer into the realm of being like God sometimes. We promise that we'll do certain things. Now, it's right and appropriate. For example, if you find somebody that you love, you want to spend your life with them, you give them a ring, I promise that I'll marry you. You have every intention of doing that in the moment. But you got to be careful that you don't leave a place for God. You don't recognize that God may have different plans for you. Things can change. Things will change. This idea of promising as a declaration to do or not do something can get you into trouble. I read a story recently about a a man who was very selfish. I loved money. Matter of fact, he loved money so much, he said he wanted to leave this earth with his money. So he told his wife that he wanted to have all of his money placed in his casket when he died. That when he leaves, he's taking it with him. He was very wealthy. And so she promised, no problem, I'll take care of that. Her friend said, are you crazy? Your husband's loaded. Put it in the ground? Are you nuts? They came for the funeral. They were at the funeral service. The wife was sitting in the front row with one of her best friends. As they closed the casket, the woman looked over and said, you didn't put all the money in the casket, did you? And she said, every cent. She said, how could you do that? She said, well, this is what I did. I took all of his money, transferred to my account. I put a check in the casket, pay to him anytime he wants. It's his money. Some people make promises you can't trust them. When it comes to our God, we're in the middle of a passage in which God has 
written some pretty, pretty big checks when it comes to promises. He's said at the end of Malachi, some 400 years before the events of the chapter that we're looking at, he said that I'm going to send somebody, Elijah, and he is going to bring my people back to me. The knowledge of who I am is going to be awoken among the people. And that's a big promise that you would do that type of thing. For 500 years, there hadn't been an angelic visitation. And yet we find out in the first chapter we've studied so far, there's already been two. God is doing something and he's writing these checks that he is going to start cashing in in the passage that we have today. He's promising to do something. He's promising to send one guy who's going to bring people back the awareness of their sin, the awareness of their covenant responsibilities before the Lord, and another, God becoming man, that Mary is going to give birth to the Messiah, the Christ. He's made these promises. In our passage today, we start seeing these promises coming through. We've been peddling through the passage, but we've come kind of mid-pedal, so you need to see that this is all fueled by the grace of God. It's very important that you see this. Before we read the passage, I want you to see that a promise from God is not simply a promise like we would see, but a promise from God is a guarantee to you and me. There's a big difference there. When God promises something, he doesn't do it like we do. It's really like a guarantee. And Luke is writing to a guy who's trying to piece together his faith. A guy by the name of Theophilus. And Luke is writing to Theophilus to help him put together the picture. Now Luke had been with Paul, at least by the middle of his second missionary journey. He had camped out with Paul. He'd heard the stories. He'd heard Paul's testimony. He'd seen Paul get beaten up. He'd seen people say him unimaginable things. Matter of fact, Luke was there when... When Paul was beheaded, as far as we know, he was with him in the final days through five different imprisonments. So Luke takes what he knows, the careful investigation that he's done, and he runs into Theophilus. Now, we don't know exactly where. We don't know if that was actually his name. We just know it was a, as a guy who was saying, you know what? You were there. You've seen it all. Could you write something down that helps me see, helps me understand who was Christ? What was the events that took place around his life? Start at the beginning, go to the end. Can you write this thing down for me? I'd really love to know. I've heard the stories. I've been informed of what happened. But man, I would love to have the information so I could see it all. And that's what you have before you today. That's the gospel of Luke. And it was written to help him trust. And so as we're building through the first verse, the second verse, and now we're coming to the the action of the course of God's faithfulness, his promise coming true. It stretches all the way back into the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And now it's breaking on the shores of the text that we have in front of us. Let's read this together. And we're going to walk through it. I want you to see underneath it all is God's grace, that his promise is not just like a promise like you and I have. His promise is a guarantee. Let's read verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, 
and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And the fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill, con- hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now before we begin to rummage through this passage, I've already told you, we're moving into the payoff of the promises that have been made. But I would like to ask you to do something as we move through the passage, we, at the end of the message is often asked uh, or point out things, takeaways. I would like to start this. And if you have a teaching guide, you have these at your bottom, the bottom of the, the, the page. Some questions. I'd like you to think about a few things as we go through the passage, almost like as we bump into truths, kind of like bumper cars. I'd like you to think about a few things. The first question would be, what truth in the story makes you see God more clearly? What in the story helps you to see God more clearly? Because if we're thinking about the idea of a promise, it's very, very important that you know who God is so that you recognize when what you think is a promise may be more of a presumption on your part. This is really important. You've met somebody like this. Somebody says, well, if God is real then, or I turned away from God because he didn't do... I'd follow God, but he didn't perform in this way. You've heard those people. And what they've done is they've taken something they thought God said to them because they imagined God to be a certain way, and they presume a promise. So through this passage, I'd like you to think about what part of the story, what aspect of the stories we're going to go through helps you see God more clearly. Second question would, what makes you worship God more deeply? What in the passage helps you worship God more deeply? Uh, because it's all through here. It's, uh, it's bursting. If this was a cup, it'd be overflowing. What helps you worship more deeply? And then the final question was, what change needs to occur in your life to see and worship more freely? Okay, that's got a rhythm to it, doesn't it? To see and worship more freely. Very important. So let's look at verse 57. There's four elements, I think, in this passage that we've read as it relates to the promises of God coming true. And there's four elements that we just want to walk through. The first is celebration. The next would be circumcision. And you might say circumcision. A promise of God? What does that mean? Confession and confirmation. We're going to start off verse 57. uh, Celebration. It says, now the time came. That is the transitional statement that Luke makes, and he does this throughout his writings. It's important. It's like a turn signal on your car. I'm going left, I'm going right, I want everybody to know that's what this is. He does this all through the first chapter. Matter of fact, in verse 5, in the days of Herod. 
Verse 8, now while serving as a priest. Verse 26, in the sixth month of the, the angel. In verse 39, in those days, Mary. In this passage and in two one, in those days, a decree went out. This is Luke's way of transitioning between scenes. If you've been to a play, the curtain comes down, things move around on stage, the curtain comes back, new scene. That's what this is. This is a new scene. And it's a celebratory scene. It's a scene filled with joy. It says, time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. Now, let's just stop here for a second. Uh, This is no ordinary story of pregnancy. If you remember from our passage before, in chapter 1, she is advanced in years, her and Zechariah. In her 60s, most likely. So this is someone who's uh, struggled to have children. On this Mother's Day, we have people like that. We have people who avoid church on Mother's Day because of the weight. You can identify with this passage. I can't understand what you're going through, but I would say this, just like we sang about, we entrust ourselves to the plan of the Lord, the wisdom of the Lord. Encourage you to find your shelter, your emotional shelter in the gospel of Christ. It's not that he is holding out on you. It's not that he doesn't love you because Christ died for you. There is a plan there that I can't comprehend and I wouldn't insult you to say I know your pain. But I do know this, you can identify in this passage with Elizabeth. Yes, things changed for her. But she found her joy long before this in the Lord. But there's a celebration here. She bore a son. And this is the celebration. It begins the fulfillment of what happened in Luke 1, 13 and 14. Remember when Gabriel showed up and he starts talking about the things that will happen whenever this child is born. And he says that you will have joy, verse 14, and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So now we see this. Gabriel had promised this, and now it's starting to come through. That check had been written, and now it's starting to be cashed. These dominoes starting to fall. It's happening. God promised it. It's coming true. It says that they would have that joy, the neighbors and their relatives. And it says that the latter part, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Notice in the passage, I love these parts of reading the Bible. Notice that it's Elizabeth's time. Notice that they rejoiced with her. Where's the husband? Where's the husband in the story? He's not there. That's meant for you, the way it's written. Luke is reaching back thematically into the fact that Zechariah questioned the angel. He could, how in the world is this going to happen? We're old. Things like this don't happen to people like us. And now all of a sudden he's not in the story. There's a tension here. She's singing a song. He's in the corner. Can't talk. Can't hear. Missing out. The people in the story at this point, they don't know of the promise because Zachariah was never able to tell them. Do you feel the tension in the passage? Very important. 
The people are rejoicing, but they could be overwhelmed if they knew the story completely. They don't know the story. They just know that this woman who was barren, matter of fact, that that's who she was called in verse 13. She's the barren woman now has a child. And the force of it is the idea that this lady's lived for decades never having a child. It was a, as if in the neighborhood, everybody knew her by that. She was the barren woman. You know, when kids are playing some game or playing throw the stick down at the end of the neighborhood run, down at the end of the alley. Well, where's, where are we going to be meeting at? We're going to meet over by Miss Elizabeth's house and Mr. Zachary's house. Oh, who's that? Well, you know, the barren lady. The lady has no kids. Everybody would be going, oh, yeah, that's how she was known. But now things have changed. But where's Zachariah? He's nowhere to be found. His disbelief could have filled the moment in a profound way. And I have to stop at this point. I think there's a lesson for us. Not only general disbelief pulls the curtains down, it turns the lights down in recognizing the hand of God, the promises of God in your life when you don't believe. It's as if the curtains of your living room of your life are drawn close so you can't see where the furniture is. It's like you can't see where the promises of God have been. And I've got to say, I think there's a unique point here for men, husbands. How are you pointing out the truths of God and the promises of God in the life of your wife and kids? Men need to step up. When things are shaking, you need to say God's on the throne. Do you remember this? Do you remember this? Do you remember this? Men, we need to be in the Word in order to be able to do this. Well, the light in the room gets dark and we can't see. We can't lead ourselves and we can't lead people around us. In this moment, it's filled with joy, but there's this stark contrast with Zachariah in the corner. Wondering what in the world's going on. He sees the birth, but he can't tell of the moment. Can you imagine the, the tension that he must be feeling? The story that Gabriel told him is racing around in his mind and he sees everybody running in front of him, but he can't tell him anything. He can't engage like he loved to. And he's reminding the reason why he can't engage is because he didn't believe. Don't find yourself in that situation, man. Pursue the Lord. Be like the guy who... uh, invited a couple in his company, very rich man, invited a couple, husband and wife, to spend a weekend at his house. He would do this periodically with people who had performed well in the job, and she was a little bit nervous. Um, He has cars. Matter of fact, he has cars that cost more than their house does. She's nervous. What will the weekend be like as they're spending time together? He's a great guy. His wife's a great guy, but she is really intimidated. But she starts loosening up over time. One particular night, they were going to a restaurant, very nice restaurant, reservations, the whole thing. They're crossing the road. This rich man who employed her husband, she noticed, looks down. He looks down and she's wondering what he's looking at. He pauses and he smiles and then he leans down. Then he picks up. She notices it's a penny. He looks at it, smiles, puts it in his pocket. She's like, what in the world is this guy who's got more money than I could imagine? Why is he picking up a penny? They rattle around in her brain the entire dinner. 
Toward the end of the dinner, she couldn't take it anymore. She said, why in the world did you stop in the intersection to pick up that penny? I've got to ask you. Pulls the penny out. He says, do you, do you see this penny? Do you see what it says? And she says, oh, United States of America. He says, no, no, no. No, not that. Look closely. One cent. No, 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 one cent. No, no, no. Look again. In God we trust. And he said, exactly. He said, you know, my life, um, my life has not always been honoring to the Lord. Matter of fact, I really loved money so much, I made it a God in my life. I could have had anything, but God brought me to my knees. And he says, so when I see a penny, I stop in the moment and I ask myself, am I still trusting God right now? Is God still my treasure and my joy? And he says, I'll pause and I'll look at that penny. And then I'll pick that penny up. Then I'll keep the penny. He said, because I need to cherish the little moments in which I trust the Lord if I'm going to trust him for the big chapters of my life. So I'm so thankful that pennies are everywhere, it seems. And so is God's grace in my life. She saw that and she reshaped her life. So when she saw a penny, she didn't just see a hunk of metal on the ground. She saw a declaration that she needs to trust the Lord as well. Zechariah didn't, but we're coming up to a moment where he does. Moves into the next section here, verse 59, the circumcision. Now you might say, well, Dan, that's a fantastic stretch into a theme here. We're talking about grace and now we're talking about circumcision. Uh, this is kind of strange and frankly gross. Um, how in the world does this speak of grace, circumcision? Well, it's... It's profoundly gracious. When we think of the mercy that was shown to Elizabeth and we transition over here, we move from an individual expression of great mercy that is fueled by grace of God for Elizabeth. And we stretch back into the Old Testament. This idea of circumcision was a gracious thing that God did to show who his people were. I think there's three particular aspects of grace that we can see from this idea before we get into the verse. There's a physical reason. There's a physical. Matter of fact, if you look in history books, if you look at medical journals, people who've studied the Jewish people over time and the rate of cervical cancer in other people groups versus the Jewish people, it's really profound. So there's a physical blessing. There's a physical grace that comes along with circumcision that God gave to the Jewish people. But I think there's also a national reason. The national reason is this uniquely identified the people of Israel as God's covenantal people that he'd made a covenant with. In Genesis chapter 17, 7 through 8, this is what the Lord says. I will establish my covenant, he's talking to Abraham, between me and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Then verse 9. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, for you throughout their generations. Now, what is the aspect of the covenant they're supposed to keep? Verse 10 of chapter 17, this is my covenant. You shall keep it between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. In verse 11, it's a sign of the covenant between me and you. In other words. 
It's a sign that you believe that I'm going to do this throughout the generations. In other words, if you believe what I'm telling you, a sign will be that you will circumcise every male. And so in this passage, they go on the eighth day for John to be circumcised because that's what it was said in the Mosaic law in Leviticus 12, 3. On the eighth day of the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And because Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous and devout, he a priest, her in the line of priests from Aaron, they would absolutely do this. So I think there's two reasons why, physical and national. But there's a third reason that I think God gave them this sign, particularly circumcision. And I would call it a spiritual reason. When you think of the story of why they needed to have a covenant with God, it was because of sin. God was doing a work in their life. And so this idea of generations that come down through from Adam and Eve, everybody that flowed after was a sinner. People don't become sinners when they sin. They're born in sin. You know that. And so this idea of we're connected together as a humanity was seen in that act of circumcision. But I think there's a greater spiritual reason. If you notice in that verse that I read in Genesis 17, 7, he says, I'll establish my covenant between me and you. And then he says, throughout their generations, an everlasting covenant. Well, that's really interesting. In order to have an everlasting covenant, you need not only God who's everlasting, but you need somebody else who's everlasting. Uh, last time I checked, all of us pass away. So it's got to transcend the mere mortal's life. So now all of a sudden we start seeing a picture of eternity and I would tell you, encourage you to look into it. I think this is the first inkling of God the Father having a covenant with God the Son. In other words, God saying, I'm putting a promise in place. I've promised it already in Genesis 3.15. I'm going to send an offspring and I'm going to make a covenant with that offspring, an everlasting covenant. And we look into Romans 5. It talks about people who are in Adam and in Christ. Adam did not obey. Christ did obey. In other words, this covenant between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, when he says, I always do things that please the Father, because the basis of my relationship with the Father, this relational covenant, I'll be perfectly obedient to him. In all the ways that Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. So I think this idea of circumcision speaks to the coming of Jesus Christ, the arrival of Christ, that if you and I put our trust in, that we can have a relationship with God. And that is a great grace, isn't it? It's an incredible grace. This points to that. This points to the fact that God has been gracious and kind and we just start seeing this. And we see it in the fact that his promise will come true in the offspring, which is Christ. Now it says in this passage, circumcision, there's a lot of details related to this. I think it's important for you to know. First of all, the father would often do the circumcision, sometimes the mother, sometimes they would have somebody designated uh, like Zipporah in Exodus 4.25 because Moses didn't have one of his sons circumcised. He was almost struck dead. She steps in the way. A witness is supposed to be present. By the time we arrive in this moment, the 
custom would be up to 10 people would have to be a witness because this was so serious. This was a sign that you are believing God in the covenant given to Abraham. The naming of the child was left to the family. But what's interesting about it is there are certain times in which the community was involved in naming the child. In Ruth chapter 4, 16 and 17, when Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who's the father of David, when he was named, he was named with the neighbors. The neighbors. Somebody at some point in the crowd in the neighborhood yelled out, Obed! They said, that's the one. That's the name. So it's not unusual. They're muscling in on this. And we have no reason to understand when they would name, but seems that on the eighth day, because that was the prescription, that's when the naming started to take place. You could name before, you could name after, but it seems like this idea of naming the child happened on the eighth day. And so they want to name, but there's confusion here. Because look at verse 60, and that's our third point, confusion. From circumcision to confusion, they wanted to call him something else. And his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. The force of this, that word no there, is absolutely not. Some people would say, no way, no how. That's kind of like the more hippie expression. Uh, You would say that... uh, It's not going to happen on my watch. That's the idea. His name shall be called John. Now, this is strange because there's nobody in the family named John. Why is this? It would be normal for him to be named after Zachariah or maybe his grandfather. That was the normal. It could be also a situational thing. Like Samuel is named Samuel because he was asked for. Elijah is named Elijah for his parents because it means Jehovah is my God. Remember Simon? His formal name was Cephas. Jesus has changed his name to be what? Peter. Because that means rock or stone. On this rock I will build my church. Read, does his name for a meaning. And I think that's what's going on here. But the people don't understand. John, like, there's nobody named John. And she said, no, absolutely. That's what he's going to be named. Verse 61, they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now just imagine this confusion that's happening here. This is the first recorded game of Pictionary in the, in the Bible. Now I, I, I love imagining these things. Imagine Zachariah in the corner. He's overwhelmed, as I've said. He's already bursting. He wish he could talk. He can't talk. He can't hear. He sees things going on in front of him. So people go, okay, clearly, um, Elizabeth, you're out of your mind. Uh, Let's go find out what what your husband thinks. And they're over there. I don't know how they would do that. What, you know, what what kind of things would they do making signs to him? Um, I don't know what it looks like. I wish I could. I wish I could do that. And we know he can't hear or talk because this, the word in uh, 722 where it talks about this, 722, 732, 737, 925, the word that's used for the fact that he can't hear, it means he can't hear and he can't speak. Matter of fact, this word that's used in this passage in chapter 1, it's also used in Habakkuk 2, 18 and 19 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the idea that can't speak or can't hear has the idea of can't speak or hear, that he can't engage at all. It's used of idols. Idols can't speak, idols can't hear. So we know that was his situation. 
So what is going on here? What's underneath it? Why is it that Elizabeth is so fixed on this? And notice in the passage, there's no place in which we see Zechariah telling Elizabeth about his name. She just knows it. Now, it's natural to think he must have communicated in some way, like in the tablet we'll look at, but we don't know at all. Matter of fact, I think that's a tension in the passage. Joel B. Green, a scholar, writes about this, that it creates tension between the unbelieving neighbors and relatives and Elizabeth. Will she name him to be John? And by the way, what does John mean? We're thinking about the idea of God's promise and God's grace that fuels the promise. What does John mean? John means Yahweh has shown favor. That's why Elizabeth wants him named this. The whole reason why we're here, the whole reason why the relatives and the neighbors, this child being born, is that God, Yahweh, has shown favor to us. The relatives don't get it. They just think it's another birth. Miraculous, yes. But it's just another birth. She says, no, 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 absolutely not. I want to be no confusion here at all. Yahweh has shown us favor. Yahweh has given us grace. And isn't that our story? Isn't that your story? Isn't the backdrop of all of God's promises in our life? This confusion leads to a confirmation. Look at verses 63 through 66. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. Picture the scene. He's in the corner. That's what I picture. Relatives are everywhere, family. They're doing these different signs, trying to figure out his name. And they go, Let's, this is ridiculous. Let's get something he can communicate. So they grab a tablet. A tablet in this time would be just a small piece of wood in which wax would be laid on the front. And what you do is take a, a stick, kind of the forerunner to a pencil, or a stone. And what you do is you could write into the wax. And then you press the wax down and effectively it erases it. So he writes down in. Now imagine, he's sitting there. Maybe he's holding the child. Maybe he's handed the child off. And they're all gathered around. And he takes his time. He's pressing down in. And then he turns it around. His name is John, which is interesting about this. In the Greek, the literal is John, his name. You actually can't get any shorter and communicate that. John, his name or John, his name. Why is that? I think the same thing. The favor of Yahweh. We're going to name him that because I didn't believe at one point. And I'm not doing that again. Yahweh's the reason why we're doing this. It's his story. Notice verse 64. And immediately, his, this idea of all at once, it's like a, a dam breaking. All at once, his mouth was open, his tongue was loose, and he spoke, blessing God. It's the idea of the word there, blessing, is the word we get derived from eulogy. Like you tell a eulogy about someone's life. That's what he's saying. He All of a sudden the dam breaks and he starts telling the people of the blessing of God, the favor of God, the favor of Yahweh in the life of this child that's just been born. What is he saying? I think he's saying this. Verse 15 of chapter 1, he'll be great before the Lord. 
He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He's going to go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready the Lord a people prepared. I think he's just saying what Gabriel had told him earlier. I just think it's been pent up for over nine months and he just goes off. It's a fulfillment. It's a fulfillment. It's a promise that Gabriel said, you're not going to talk until this comes through. And in the moment it happens, he's overwhelmed. And the next section of Luke talks about the promises and prophecies of what John will do. He just keeps talking into the future, talking about what he's been told, but also into the future. Notice this though. Luke slips in a little splinter into the context. Verse 65. In fear came on all their neighbors. Why a fear? Why a fear? I think because the idea, the Lord's coming. The Lord's coming. That's what John's going to do. John's going to prepare the way for the Lord. I think it arrested the neighbors going, we've been playing fast and loose with the promises of God. We've been overlooking the grace of God. And if this child, who we can see is miraculous, but born, we heard the story from Zechariah. We saw this. His tongue loosed. He goes from not being able to speak to be able to speak, not be able to hear to hear. This is amazing. They all step back. Have we been taking that amazing God seriously? It's true that Yahweh's shown favor, is embodied in the child that's just been born. Have I been taking that for granted? Have I not been taking him seriously? I think he slips that in there and the word spreads throughout the hill country and all who heard were laid up in their, uh, in their hearts saying, what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him? Isn't that great? Isn't that incredible? As the band is coming up, think about this. Think about the fact that God writes the check of the promises. Now it's coming true. We're changing into a new transition, a new scene, a new part of the drama. It's all about God's grace, his promise. But throughout the passage, we're seeing, do we take his promise seriously? Do we take his grace for granted? Throughout all of it, there's these ups and downs. So I've got to ask you, told you at the beginning to think about maybe something that helps you see God more clearly. Have you got something in this passage? Have you learned something maybe from the relatives, maybe from the neighbors, maybe from Zachariah, maybe Elizabeth? Have you worshiped God more deeply? Can you sing the songs we're about to sing in a way that you wouldn't have sung them before you heard the truths we've just talked about? Grab hold of that. Don't let the curtains close on the truth that you've heard. Don't let the room get dark. You've got to grab a hold of truths and you've got to say, Lord, help me to believe this to be true. And when we don't, we repent. Lord, thank you for your promise. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Which brings us to the last thing I ask you to do. What needs to change in your life? For Zachariah, if he was here today, if he could come up on stage, he'd say, I was foolish in not believing the Lord because he followed through. Maybe what you need to do is get close to somebody that's in this church. Or maybe you're struggling in your faith. 
Maybe you're not believing God like you once did. You need to talk to somebody and help somebody or have somebody help you to see how God is faithful to his promises. You need to learn from them. You need to hear their story of how God has woven themselves in their life so that you go, wow, it's faithful to you who'll be faithful to me. Let's believe his promises to be true. Let's not presume on God. He should do something for me. He's never promised. Because if that's the case, it's really idolatry. So in this passage today, I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're stirred. On a day like today, in a season of graduation, there's going to be a lot of things that families are going to have to trust the Lord for. Trust the Lord for things he's told you, he's promised you to do. Believe those things. Walk in those things. Pull the curtains back wide for the truth to shine in. You'll be glad you did. And this passage shows us the joy that can be the result. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're thankful for your great mercy that you showed to Elizabeth. Thank you for your grace that you showed in providing John, this baby, showing your favor. Help us to recognize and respond to that. Help us to worship you more deeply, to see you more clearly. And in our life when we don't, help us to recognize the things that have to be changed. And thank you for the grace that is actually in this room right now. People are here on the basis of your grace. We are hearing the truth of your word on the basis of your kindness and grace. All of this stuff, we are swimming in an atmosphere of grace. And that's where your promises live and come true because you have said that. Thank you for the truth of your word. Enlighten our hearts as we continue and God this week to make much of you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.